Welcome to a new episode of In the Ring with Acacia. Come on, so happy to have you joining me today. In the Ring gets its support from Qatar Racing, who we're thrilled to be partnered with. Qatar Racing is a subsidiary of Kipco, the largest sponsor in British flat racing. As a global racing and breeding operation, Qatar Racing Chairman Sheikh Fahad bin Abdullah Al Thani has created an expansive international sponsorship portfolio to include the Breeders' Cup and events like the Pegasus World Cup Turf. Qatar Racing has over 100 horses in training, many mares and foals, yearlings, and four top-class stallions in Chemico, Zustar, Havana Gold, and Lightning Spear. Don't miss out on the great Qatar Racing action and learn more at In the Money podcast.com slash Qatar. We are also supported by Toba, the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders Association. Toba's mission is to improve the economics, integrity, and pleasure of the sport on behalf of thoroughbred owners and breeders. Projects managed by Toba include the American Graded Stakes Committee, Committee, the Claiming Crown, Ownership Seminars, Breeding Confirmation, and Pedigree Clinics, the Sales Integrity Program. Toba provides international representation for U.S. owners and breeders on the International Grading and Race Planning Advisory Committee, International Cataloging Standards Committee, and the International Thoroughbred Breeders Federation. The Thoroughbred Charities of America, or TCA, is the charitable arm of TOBA, and TOBA Media Properties, a subsidiary of TOBA, is the co-owner of Blood Horse, LLC. Toba is also represented on the board of directors of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association as a founding member and represented on the board of directors of the Racing Medication and Testing Consortium as a founding member. Big thank you to all of our sponsors and those that support us in making this show possible. With that, we are talking a little bit about sales season. We're going back in time a little bit to one of the two-year-old sales, but a really, really cool story with one of the guests today and she gives some fascinating information about a piece of what we see with the sales world but also bringing in her industry as well so i hope you enjoy her story as much as i did and then of course previewing what's coming up here in saratoga next week uh, the Facebook tipton sale coming up and uh, a lot of the focus will be on that exciting yearling sale so hope you enjoy today's show thanks for joining as always we'll get right to our first guest I'm so happy to welcome in my next guest, Camille Booker. You may have had an opportunity to hear her name or read her story. And it really is an awesome one as we saw her being a bid spotter at a recent sale with Basic Tipton. And Camille, I am so excited to have you on and get a chance to uh, talk a little bit about your background and your involvement. And I appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you in the ring and looking forward to visiting with you today. Well, as I mentioned, you had the opportunity uh, to work as a bid spotter at the Phasic Dipton Mid-Atlantic two-year-old sale in Maryland. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? Sure. I um, It's actually been a long process to finally get to where we're at, but um, a patient one, that's for sure. I um, have had the opportunity to um, work with Joseph Mast, who is the lead auctioneer now for Phasic Tipton. Um, I have worked with him 
through Barrett Jackson, as well as masked auctioneers who he oversees and have had done some contract with work with him throughout the years. We actually, if you want to take it back farther, we won together in the International Auctioneer Championship back in 2011. And after we became co-champions together, had the opportunity to get to work a little bit. So back to Fazek Tipton. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to meet Boyd Browning, the president and CEO of Fazek Tipton, and we discussed the opportunity to have me uh, come out and start working with Fazek, and the timing wasn't quite right for both Fazek as well as myself, and so eventually uh, the opportunity came this, earlier this spring discussing with Joseph Mass that an opening was available up at the Maryland sales to give me that opportunity. And when we go to sales, we see uh, the bid spotters who is such an important job, uh, particular, particularly with um, all of the, the big numbers that we'll often see at two-year-old sales as well. And it's different to see a woman in that position. What was it like stepping into that role? And your voice sounds a little bit different than the others in the room. Yes, it does. I was actually uh, preparing for more resistance than what was received. And um, I do believe as far as what I was understood that I potentially may have um, stepped into a role that another female has never been in before. And so preparing myself for that, I had just expected some pushback and was thinking that this is just going to take a little bit of time for them to understand that, hey, I'm here to help and assist to help the, uh, obviously, the bidder get the um, horse that they're there for and just get them connected with the auctioneers. We're just essentially the extension of the auctioneer out there to, uh, to the bidder. And so I just assumed it was going to take a little bit of time to earn that trust as well as um, confidence in them to know that I knew what I was actually doing, despite the fact that I have been doing it for a while just in a completely new niche. And so um, it, it actually was much better received than I had anticipated at all. They were extremely warm. Um, Fazek Tipton was amazing. And the whole crowd there actually was extremely accepting. Uh, really, when the very first, very first horse sold, they didn't have any problem that I could see with me mm -hmm. being there. That's very cool to hear. And you know, we always hear stories of people bidding on horses that they have their little tells, you know, their little movements that they might make. Um, not everybody waves frantically to try and catch attention to put a bid in. What was that process like and looking out for people who may, may potentially want to go in for that horse? Sure. So I feel like uh, I've grown up in the auction industry mm -hmm. and so much of what we do is read body language. And oftentimes uh, you can almost tell that somebody is interested in that, um, that item, that horse for this example, before they're even ready to bid on it. So you start watching their movements. Um, it seems like they can become a little bit more anxious. Uh, you can start to see their attention starting to track you down as well as potentially they're shifting, you know, towards the front of the room or towards the front. Um, and so their whole body language changes before even they even raise their hand or potentially do a little movement to let you know that they're interested. So you, over the course of, I would say, many years, you start to learn that about an individual in there. And everybody has a different bidding style too. Um, and in this particular instance, most are very conditioned. They're very aware 
buyer of the auction um, style for uh, for horse sales, and so it wasn't like this was their first time coming to bid. So they have their they have their own individual styles, and so it's my job to learn their style. You know, some want to be noticed that they're bidding; others want to be very discreet, and so understanding uh, just their personality pretty quickly to figure out how we can get their bids turned in and and to the auctioneer. What's the relationship like between the bid spotter and the auctioneer and making sure that you're able to convey as as quickly and smoothly as possible what's going on out on the floor? Sure. It's, it's extremely important. Um, I'm actually blessed that most of the auctioneers that I've worked with, um, even at Fazig were crossed over even into other venues that I've worked with. So there's a lot of trust that we've gained over the course of, uh, several years, but also, um, you know, worked with some new ones as well. And so some conversations just before the event to understand that this is what, this is how they handle situations and wanting to make sure that we're just both on the same page and yes, in a very quick and quickly timely fashion as well. So maybe you're a new face at Phasic Tipton, but certainly not a new face in the world of auctions. I, I read that you're actually third generation auctioneer. Can you tell me a little bit about the influence that it's had on your family? Yeah, I am a third generation auctioneer and my grandpa and my dad started our business back in the 80s. And um, when I was a kid, I was the one that was um, take, going to the auctions. We did a, we were primarily sell agricultural um, agribusiness. We work with agri clients in the area that I live in, the Pacific Northwest. And so, um, go to the auctions, go to the farm auctions. And I was the girl that would take the clerk sheet from the clerk back to the office, and slowly worked my way into the office where I was getting the opportunity to work as the cashier, as well as like the checkout. And eventually, um, at 16, my dad had asked that my older sister go to auction school and he decided to send me at the same time. And so um, at that time in my life, no desire to be an auctioneer. Um, I'm actually an extremely quiet person. So the idea of going was kind of terrifying, especially at 16 and thought, fine, I will go. I'll learn the business, have a respect for it had no desire to um, potentially take it anywhere except for just when I came home and worked for my dad. But it actually was in a senior when I was in college, I realized that that was actually the profession that I wanted to dive into. And within it, it's been very unique and very rewarding. Um, Just with all that it's taken me to, as well as just our home business where um, my brother and I run our current family business back here in the state of Washington. And, um, Um, it's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. I'm currently working on the fourth generation, teaching my son Mm -hmm. and um, all the different um, opportunities that it's given me and that it's presented me. It's definitely been very rewarding and love to take the tradition that my grandpa started it with, but also continue to carry on, you know, where we're headed in today's world. And there's a lot of technique involved in it as well. You mentioned going um, to school for it. Can you can you talk a little bit about what it's like learning to become an auctioneer and and developing your own style in the process too? I it's actually been really interesting because going 16 at 16 that was a long time ago and going to auction school is really just a great 
open the door introductory to what the industry consists of, what type of niches you could tap into, and they start introducing you to that auction chant. And as crazy as it is, I went to auction school and never had even tried to chant, um, by even with growing up around my dad and my grandpa, and I also had three uh, uncles that were auctioneers as well. Oh. So going there for the first time without even trying it um, was definitely eye-opening as well as extremely scary. So, you know, they're auction school, they're teaching you tongue twisters, they're really teaching you some rhythm and just giving you those basics. They actually had us go to several different auctions um, that were live events, you know, that were extremely terrifying. Mm -hmm. But um, just building that over the time, I'm still you know, several gener or several decades in, and I'm still changing my chant, still tweaking my chant, um, and changing it despite like, depending on what venue I'm working in. Mm -hmm. So a fundraiser would be completely different than an auto auction to an equipment auction. Um, just totally depends on what you're, what you're selling and the type of energy and the type of, um, audience that you have as well, how you're going to deliver it. And I found it extremely, um, it's been taking me back because my little boy is 13 mm -hmm. and he's been learning how to do it. And we've been working and playing with his chant and trying to remember um, just how quickly you like, you've got to learn the numbers and get that to that point where the numbers and the chant become second nature to you because there's also so much that's going on. That's going through your mind that you're thinking about, you know, the crowd and what you're going to say next and, and communicating and understanding that, um, what the product is that you're selling and the numbers that we need to achieve. So that chant almost becomes second nature to you. And it's got to be something that's, you know, very rhythmatic because if someone's going to sit there and listen to you all day long, it's got to have, it's better to have good rhythm, have great cadence and um, also be, you know, have some excitement in it every once in a while mm -hmm. too, because we don't want to put an audience to sleep amidst <laughs> all of the, <laughs> the long days. So um, yeah, it's, but it's been a lot of fun to, to try to take that and teach my son as well at this age. It's so fascinating. And it, it's such a, um, it's such a different world too. And, and I have so much respect for the people that can do it. And I thought it was really cool too, reading that you'd actually won a auctioneer competition, the international international auctioneer championship. Can you tell me a little bit like that about that and what a competition is like in that sort of arena? Yes, it was um, back in 2011 that I did have the opportunity to win the International Auctioneers um, Auctioneer Championship. It was we were in Orlando, Florida, and that wasn't my first competition, but um, I felt like that day, I think everything just was felt right. Um, but it was um, for that competition, which actually just got home from it. We Oklahoma City last week and just was a part of um, the competition that was held this year. So it is held annually. But the competition, uh, when I did it, uh, the preliminaries, it consisted of three auction items. You had to get up, you introduced yourself, you had seven judges that were judging you um, based on and your overall poise, uh, how well you had an auction chant, 
what kind of salesman you were. And so you're being judged by those seven judges. And then you actually had a live auction amidst this um, conference that was happening for our national auction convention. And so most of the time you've got some good friends and family that are in there supporting you and the items would be provided by the association. So they're very similar in values so that everybody had somewhat of a consistency. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you happen to make it onto the finals, um, this next portion would take you into the interview and it would, um, they'd put you in a sequestered nerve wracking and extremely stressful at that point because you've kind of realized you've made it to that next step. And then you're pulled out and asked three impromptu questions in front of the audience, as well as the judges that were industry related. Mm-hmm. Um, you would be serving as an ambassador for the association for the next year. So they can present yourself well and be a great auctioneer, but also can you go out and speak positively about the association as well as the industry and whatever is currently the current events that are happening. So um, once the interview was done, we would then roll into the finals, which would be once again, like three more auction items and selling in a much larger crowd because a good portion of the association would show up to watch the finals for the evening. So um, it was definitely one of those out-of-body experiences when you cross that stage Um, to this day. It is, um, even just watching it, it was just last Friday for us in Oklahoma City. It's extremely nerve-wracking and exciting. And now that I'm a past champion, um, I have the opportunity to help with the current contestants. And I love nothing more to try to be on the, kind of like the last person they see before they hop onto that stage to try to take those, calm those nerves, take the stress away. Cause I just remember how stressed out I was um, that I can, if I can give them any sort of calming feeling before they get on there so that they can showcase themselves. I definitely um, want to do that. So it's definitely something I'm still very much uh, passionate about. And actually my son was down there. He was competing in the junior auction competition this last week as well at 13 yes what's even more stressful than (laughs) even myself doing it when I won so um (laughs) as a parent I think it's 10 times worse (laughs) I can only imagine but that is so so cool um and now getting a chance to see like you said the fourth generation come back and um you, you can just feel the passion in your voice when you talk about it and we discussed you being the first female bid spotter at Vasic Tipton and in horse racing. Um, we have not had an auctioneer. Um, that's a female. And I imagine it's still a smaller margin of uh, women versus men in the industry. Can you talk a little bit about that and finding opportunities? And like you said, building that trust as a female doing what you do. Yes. So I believe I don't have an exact statistic right now, but I feel like we're probably a 15 to 20 percent females in our industry. And I actually feel like it continues to grow. We see a lot of females in the um, fundraiser sector. And um, but then there's plenty of other areas that I see women that are working as well. And um, I feel like when I grew up, I was just blessed with parents that taught us to work hard and to use you know, use the qualities that you have, use your strengths, chase your dreams and and do something that you love. And I think because of that and growing up in the industry here, um, I never really felt the difference of the fact that me being a female versus a male mm-hmm. in the industry. And 
I think I felt like I've just approached the rest of my goals or trying to crack into other markets in the same way um, and try. I, I don't doubt I've had some pushback and I've definitely had to have some patience because opportunities may seem to take a little bit longer before they, you know, completely show themselves. But I feel like once once I've had the opportunity to get my foot in the door or work with a colleague that can see that I have the, the potential or that I, you know, clearly know what I'm doing, um, they've been the ones that have helped me give other opportunities to other positions along the way. And I feel like, you know, they can give me the opportunity to step into that realm, but then I have to prove myself again that I, I deserve that bot. And so I, I feel like just I've just always just tried to look at it that way that, hey, use my qualities, use what I'm capable of doing and try not to necessarily look at it that this is female versus male. Um, but yes, definitely earning their trust and recognizing that, um, you know, a good smile as well as an approachable personality is going to go much farther for me than, um, you know, something else in some other capacity. Being genuine, I think is probably yeah. the most important. Well, it's just awesome. And I, and I love like I said, hearing the passion that you have for the industry and for um, what your family has done and, and obviously become so good at. And you said that it, there could be some more opportunities in the future for you to be involved in horse sales with Basic. Yes, I um, have the opportunity to come back and work the the Maryland sale for the two-day Mid-Atlantic Fall Yearlings in October. And I believe they have another one in December. And I felt like um, Joseph Mast and I, we discussed earlier this spring that that was going to be a great start with what currently is on my plate with, with all my other contract work and running the business at home, as well as, you know, just an opening opened up there in the Maryland sale. So it was a great start. Um, we'll see where it goes. And, um, you know, if there's some other ones that we get to potentially be seen at, that would be awesome too. I do know um, it was pretty exciting. I was very excited for her. Um, he recently brought his daughter on and she worked at one of the Kentucky sales recently, um, Emma Mast. And she has, um, I've had an opportunity to work and mentor with her at Barrett Jackson sales. So I was cheering her on from home, yeah. getting to watch her, um, you know, have her presence there in Kentucky and um, getting her way figured out through that as well. It's just great to see. And um, it's so fun to have a new voice present in the sport of horse racing as well. And we hope to see much more of you um, at future sales. And uh, Camille, it was so interesting learning a little bit about what you do. And I, I can't say thank you enough for taking the time and, and sharing your story. Oh, well, it's my pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you considering me and asking me to be a guest and look forward to potentially running into you along the way. So happy to welcome back into the show, Travis White, Stallion Nominations Manager from TaylorMade. Uh, Travis, it's coming up to be that very busy and exciting time of the year. What's new at TaylorMade? You know, we've uh, this time of year is, is just, uh, it's chaos for the most part, but it's, it's a good thing. It's the, you know, the part of year that we really look forward to, you know, the September sale, or actually you can start out with the, uh, we just finished up the, the basic July sale, and then these guys will start shipping in next week for the basic Tifton Saratoga sale, and then we'll just roll on, you know, the September sale, October sale, and then Broodmares and Wienlings, you know, November and January. So this is a busy time, you know, for the sales guys on the farm. Um, just a lot of sales prep going on, and we're still trying to recruit horses for the November sale as well, and, um, you know, just kind of keep rolling from there. 
obviously there are kind of specific sales seasons, but you, you kind of touched on it. It's really a, a 365 day a year thing that you're always thinking about the next sale. You're always looking forward. You're always trying to build um, up with your stallions, looking at the, the stock that you have. There's never really a lull, even though there are some busier times when the sales pick up. Nah, I think it's, I feel like they've just continued to add more sales. And now you have the digital sales uh, that mm -hmm. they're offering as well. So it really is basically, you know, 11, you know, 12 months a year for the most part. And for me, I don't sell, you know, I don't have as many accounts, you know, that are still on Nearlink, but then we work on the day. Once we start back into, you know, November, we start, you know, the breeding season's right around the corner. So we're trying to recruit mares and get everything situated for the breeding season. Um, and that team of people, you know, like with the guys that work up, with, you know, in the stallion complex, I mean, they're going to work basically seven days a week, uh, you know, from January to June, you know, as we, you know, they start breeding mares in February. So now it really is, it's just nonstop. But I think the good thing is we have a, a good team in place, good leadership and, um, you know, enough people to kind of take care of everything and make sure we've got our eyes dotted and T's crossed. If you're up at Saratoga at any time throughout the summer, of course, you know about the, the Phasic Tipton Saratoga yearling sale. It's something everybody always looks forward to. Always a lot of fireworks there and something really cool taking place this year. Um, selling a share of Not This Time on Tuesday, August 8th at the Saratoga sale. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And obviously, Not This Time, he's just been an incredible stallion. And we've seen his progeny have big success at Saratoga. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, he's been such a blessing to, to our farm and entire team. And um, he's a horse that I've always tried to tell people. I mean, from day one, I mean, he's been good to a lot of people in the business. You know, whether it was breeders that started out breeding him, I mean, it was a $15,000 stud fee, um, you know, to the first people that stepped in and bought them as yearlings, the first couple of crops. And they may have, you know, had their horse win first or second time out and resell it probably for a lot of money or for the people that bought them and stayed you know and they went on to become you know great stakes winners but he's just been a, a special horse i think really for our entire industry and um you know they're, they're hard to come by I mean, it's a very very difficult part of the game as is i mean i think every part of this game is very difficult mm -hmm. but um, the stallion part's no different it's just really hard to to hit on the to land on a good stallion and one like especially like him i mean he's so young i mean he's just nine years old um and you know knock on wood he's got you know a lot more years left in him but yeah the yeah the uh the share is it's, it's a pretty cool thing this is something that uh you know a shareholder came to us uh and the boy browning and and, and just kind of picked our brains and yeah we said yeah let's go ahead and build we thought it was a great idea um we thought it would be good promotion for the horse as well and you know for the shareholders it's a good opportunity for him this is a guy that bought in um in the horse three or four years ago so i think you know it's just it's a good opportunity for him and it's you know it's good for the horse as well how important is it trying to do different things like that in in the world of the sales and marketing the stallions and trying to do um different things that do create some buzz obviously his results speak for themselves of course but you have to be creative sometimes too no it really is i mean i think that's one thing that uh and i do think i give credit to those guys with facing tip and they're they're always you know they're very creative i, I think a tailor made in the sense um mm -hmm. throughout the course of our history has been very innovative um whether it's how we run our consignments or how we advertise our stallions i feel like we've always 
you know, try to be one step ahead the best we can and, and be creative and try different things. But I think we've always been willing to kind of step out of the, the norm and just give different things a try that somebody else, you know, might not be comfortable doing. As I touched on uh, with not this time success at Saratoga, you look at Epicenter last year and just um, his dominance, becoming a three-year-old champion, winning the Travers and Jim Dandy um, here at the spa. How exciting was that for when you're the team that has the stallion and you see his progeny become a champion and have all of that big success in the three-year-old division? Yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, I think part of that, our game is so geared as far as the commercial breeding game is really geared about having, you know, a big, you know, a couple of really nice three-year-olds on the Derby trail. Mm -hmm. um, that just really elevates the, you know, the, the, the horses are in the, you know, they're in the media, they're in the news. It's so much more than your typical, whether it's a, you know, a four-year-old or five-year-old running in grade one. I mean, the three-year-olds just capture the imagination of, of every breeder, every owner, every consigner. I mean, that really puts him on a stage uh, like no other. So when he had, you know, he had Epicenter and a couple other, you know, Simplification was on the Derby Trail. In due time was kind of, you know, making his way. And it was just, it, it was, for me personally, it's the, definitely the highlight of my career. And, um, you know, this for, and, and, and the Alball family owns, you know, the vast majority of him. And Jason Lush, you know, he's a mm -hmm. huge fan of the sport. I mean, he follows, he follows all of the projects. I mean, he really, he, constantly texting, calling, you know, with results and workouts of all these horses. I mean, to, to kind of share that with those guys who, you know, they put a lot of, a lot of money, a lot of effort in the game, mm -hmm. a lot of time. They're good for the sport. To see that just come to fruition for all of us, it was, uh, it's just a, uh, it's a great, it's a great feeling and, a, you know, a good simple accomplishment for, for everybody that got behind this horse. Yeah, he's so awesome, and um, it, it's so fun. I'm a huge fan of the stallion as well. But you have some really exciting new stallions at, at TaylorMade, too. wanted to ask you about a couple of those in particular. Um, Nick's go, pretty interesting, is his uh, first foals will arrive this year in 2023. Obviously, a very, very fast horse, horse of the year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the reaction to him has been so far and some of the things that you're expecting? Yeah, he bred a pretty good, you know, very solid book of mares. Um, and then the foals we've seen so far this year, I mean, I, I've been very pleasantly, you know, not surprised, but I mean, I'm very optimistic about what we've got going in. You know, we'll see some of those in November, but, uh, but the foals are really good. They're, they're good size. They've got great balance, a lot of substance to them. Um, so I think that he'll be a horse. Yeah, I think once people get out there and see him starting in November and even going on to the next year, I think that, just with his, you know, what, what he's done the racetrack, which, I mean, if you look back, he's probably one of the better race horses we've had in the last five or six years. I and mean, he was just a, a do-it-all horse. I mean, he's a great one winner, too. Um, you know, ran a multiple Breeders' Cup races, mm -hmm. you know, won a Breeders' Cup class. He kind of gives everybody a little bit of everything you want in business. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's just a horse we're excited about and looking forward to seeing what happens in the next couple of years. Some other exciting uh, new stallions, too. Obviously, uh, Tacitus, regally bred um, by Tappe. Uh, you've got Idol as well. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown of, of the newer stallions in the roster? Yes, yeah, so our roster is kind of, you know, we got, but not this time, is the only proven, you know, yeah. the horse, only horses got Prodigy on the track, and the rest are kind of, their time is coming. So, you know, um, OXO, their horses, they've got, 
Instagram and still regarding row eight. And so they're their first proper all yearling selling this year. So and Mr. Best has really gotten behind each of those horses and bred some very, very good mares to them. Um, and Instagram is a horse that's been very popular from day one. Bred 190 mares the first year, close to 150 the second year. So he's a horse, I think, and I think he'll appeal to, to the commercial buyers, you know, come September. And then from there, we've got, then you have, yeah, we talked about Nick's Go and Tacitus, you know, both of those horses. Their first crop of weanlings this year. Um, you know, Tacitus is a horse that that we own with Judd Mott and Don Alberto, mm -hmm. which are two you know powerhouse organizations. You couldn't ask for better partners. Um, they support the horse very heavily, and he's been again. The foals are really nice. He's kind of a lot like him, I and mean, they're bigger, leggier, real good neck and shoulders. Great natural muscling. Has some scope and length to him, and I think. You know, both him and Nick Spill will be very popular in November. And then Ido's a horse that, um, you know, we got interested in a while back. And he's a, he, he kind of a little bit late, late, you know, as far as you know, becoming a great stakes winner. But he was a horse that, you know, great speed early on and set track record at Churchill Downs. And I've got to know Richie Baltus over the years, just, you know, selling some horses for his clients. And, um, this, when I looked at him out in California, he was a big, beautiful horse, kind of under the radar, you know, for the Kentucky scene. But then once Nest, you know, popped up, I mean, that really elevated, you know, for us, you know, the pedigree part of it, very, it's a huge factor. So, um, and then Michael Poli ended up buying in uh, with us, along with mm -hmm. a couple of our shareholders, and we were able to go, go out and buy. I think we bought 10 mares in January and uh, able to breed all those good mares to him. And he got a nice book and looking forward to him the next few years. Yeah, some very exciting stuff. And and like you said, not this time is proven. And then the rest are, are um, kind of new and exciting and horses that you are familiar with having just recently seen them on the racetrack. What are some of the characteristics that allow a horse to make that jump from being a good racehorse to being a good stallion? You know, ultimately, I think it comes down, they've got to have, you know, obviously, I think speed's a very important part of this. Um, in the in the pet you know the pedigree the you know the class and stuff like that which most of the horses that we that we end up standing um they have to fit our you know our our, our customer base our customer base is, is very much geared towards from the commercial market so they've got to be you know physically very good physicals and then they've got to also you know check some boxes as far as the pedigree goes so that's kind of what we tend to do is try to find Horses that are good physicals that, that you know that'll, that'll fit the commercial market. Hopefully, you know they have some early speed, and then have you know some back class and pedigree to it. Um, kind of, hopefully, at the end of the day, you you have some luck and have one or two that hit for you. That's always the hope, right? And it, and of yeah. course, it is a, an inexact science. But I think one thing that that can get lost a little bit sometimes is that that like horseman's intuition. You know, people that have been in this game for such a long time and been in the breeding industry. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe kind of a a gut feeling and and the importance of the team and and you know the the experience that TaylorMade brings with those kinds of decisions? Yeah, I mean. I Taylor May is very unique in that there's four brothers, you know, that uh, that kind of own and run the operation or have, you know, for the past, you know, since it's since it started. 
and they all bring a little bit of something different to the table, which I think to me is is very first of all it's unique. But I think it's extremely helpful. Um, you know, you have you know Mark and Frank who kind of look at the horse, you know, from a physical standpoint. You know, you know does it fit? You know, our, our broodmare band, our, our customer base. And then you have Duncan. Duncan is the more Duncan's very pedigree oriented, and he goes and he loved. And he was give most of the credit. Uh, probably for, for us getting not this time. And he really pushed for us to, for those guys to kind of get behind him and make a serious run to the horse. And uh, he just loved the way the horse, the, you know, the pedigree, you know, he's just a, a huge pet. He's one of the you know, smarter people that I've come across in this yeah. game. And pedigree wise, he's probably, the, he's one of the, one of the best. But, and then we have, you know, Ben who, who runs the stallion operation. You know, he's been in this, you know, for a long time. He's, you know, we had St. Bellato, we had, Unbridled song. We had forestry, and just to kind of, he can kind of put it all together, and really good at selecting the mares and getting the right kind of mares. Um, you know, just the whole, it's, it's the mare selection process is crucial uh, for all these horses, really. And it's not just how good the mare is; it's a matter of her produce history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and trying to get these mares in the breeding shed early, get them bred, you know, get them in full early, get them kind of moved off the books, and that way, you know, your horse can. Just to kind of to only breed, you know, what two or three mares a day and not get too backed up. I mean, so I think mare selection is very critical. And we do look at six cross of every single mare that we get. You know, we kind of see how it matches up with the horse and kind of take a deeper dive into each mare's pedigree. You know, to, to kind of, you know, and, and Duncan will say, hey, let's look for, you know, such and such, you know, brood mare sires or, 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 you know, certain things in the pedigree that, we, that, that we'll kind of go back and look look for as well just to kind of kind of mesh it all together from a physical standpoint and a pedigree standpoint it's so fascinating it's such an uh, a deeper process i think than people realize sometimes and and you guys do such a terrific job with all of it really looking forward to seeing um the tailor-made draft with the upcoming sale at basic tipton yeah. and um i once again a really really strong group it looks like yeah i was just uh, i think we've got about as good a group as we ever had up there and mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we've done it, and this year, same as last year, we did a little bit different. We've got two separate barns set up, so it's kind of more of a boutique, you know, showing for us because we have, you know, two different groups of horses and two different barns. And I think we've got, um, like I said, they feel like they've got a really, really strong group going up there. We've got, a, you know, the, the Curlin out of Beholder, yeah. and then we've got an End of Mischief uh, that's out of Rachel's Valentina that's really nice. And then Windstar's got a, an end of mischief that's really, really good as well. And we've got four and a half times that they love. So I'm hoping we can go out, you know, and get the stallion off to a good start here at Saratoga. And then they kind of set things up, you know, when the, when the share goes through on Tuesday night. Very exciting. Um, best of luck with everything. Can't wait to uh, take a look at the babies and good luck with the share as well, Travis. As always, thank you so much for taking the time. Wow, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for another episode of In the Ring. Big thank you to my guests, Camille and Travis, for taking the time and um, sharing a little bit of info and some great stories as well. Thanks to our sponsors, Qatar Racing and Toba. Be sure to check out what's going on with them and all the exciting things coming up. And finally, hope to see you up here at Saratoga this summer. If you come to the races, you can usually find me sprinting in between the paddock and the winner's circle. So be sure to come on over and say hi. Hope that you can share 
share this episode. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode of In the Ring.